Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I love that video clip. I've shown it in a number of different settings, and there are so many lessons you can draw from that hilarious video. Uh, lessons about temptation, about patience, but at the end... I think the reason I wanted to show it this morning is we're kicking off a new series about faith. And the series is called Big Faith. And the reason we can have big faith is because we have a big God. As we talk about this topic of faith, that video reminds us that that tension that those kids were living with, or at least the older kids, the younger ones, didn't even wait until the woman walked out of the room. But the older kids, they live with the tension that we all live with all the time. As spiritual people, as followers of Jesus, we will always live with the tension of the visible, tangible, real world that's right there in front of us. It's, it's there. You can smell it. You can touch it. You can taste it. It's so immediate, and it seems so real. But then there's this other reality, this other world described to us in the pages of Scripture. And that world is so often invisible. And its full expression is so future that God speaks promises about hope, about a day that is coming when all the damage we've endured will be repaired, where all the things we've longed for will come to us. But the truth is, that world is a lot harder to grasp, isn't it? And in many ways, that little experiment, 30 minutes sitting in a room with a marshmallow, is like a microcosm of all of human life, isn't it? Because there is a real that I can touch, and there is a real that I believe in, but sometimes it doesn't seem that real. Those kids had to believe in faith. That woman is not an evil liar. That she really would deliver a second marshmallow if only they hold out until the end. What if she was a wicked liar? They wouldn't know until the 30 minutes of torture had passed. And that marshmallow, delicious smelling, fluffy, soft and inviting, is sitting right there under your nose on a plate. The truth is we all live in a world that's very tangible. It's very physical. But we also live in a kingdom that is invisible and future. And I want you to remember those two words because those two words, probably better than any other two, describe the nature of God's kingdom. It is invisible and it is so future in so many ways. How do we reconcile life in this tangible world against all of those invisible and future elements of the kingdom of God? I don't know if you're familiar with a a guy named, if we can get the slides up there, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Watchman Nee. He was a pastor in China before the Cultural Revolution. He was a really prolific writer and teacher. He really uh, had a good handle on the essence of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. He was arrested after the Cultural Revolution and spent the last 20 years of his life persecuted and imprisoned. But in his book, The Normal Christian Life, and what an awesome book title, The Normal Christian Life. He wrote these words, faith is always meeting a mountain, a mountain of evidence that seems to contradict God's word, a mountain of apparent contradiction in the realm of tangible fact, and either faith or the mountain has to go. They cannot both stand. And what he meant is, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to learn what faith is, but the world will not cooperate with you on that quest. Every day you will have to look for faith in the midst of a very tangible and immediate world. How are you going to build faith in a context like that? I think in light of what Watchman Nee wrote, you can, you can take that off the screen there now, In light of what he wrote, I think a common temptation is to sort of just dismiss 
the entire invisible realm. If you think about it, it's kind of a big headache. Why do you want to dwell on invisible things, on promises that may not be fulfilled until this life is over? Isn't it easier just to deal with the here and now? And I think that's the normal human preference, is let's get rid of all this abstract talk about an invisible kingdom, an invisible God, future promises, and let's deal with what is happening right now. In fact, I think often what we try to do is pull the spiritual realm into the physical realm and turn this faith into something we can deal with, something that's manageable with the five senses that we have. And so, for example, we prefer religion with its rules and its rituals, with its checkboxes. I can at least say with religion, I did it. I did it. I know what was expected of me, and I did it. That's different from true faith that transacts in things that are more abstract, more perhaps real, but harder to define. I think that's why we'd prefer to just say, yeah, I went to church versus I've gotten to know God better. One of those is a lot messier. It's a lot foggier than the other. I think we'd rather say, you know, I'm just going to avoid that person for the rest of my life than to deal with learning how to forgive, to be gracious, to be patient. It's so much easier to make lists of people I'm just not going to deal with than to go through the messy road of learning how to form community despite the hiccups. I think it's a lot easier to give away some of our money than to give away all of our freedom and our will. These are all things that that signal not just a lack of commitment, but a strong philosophical preference for things that are tangible. We'd rather that Christianity work the way the military works. There aren't lots of ambiguities in the military. That's one of the things that I love about it. Either you're going to do this or do that. I'm not going to leave you guessing what I mean. It's so cut and dried. Either you have obeyed or you have disobeyed. And I think we prefer that. But the truth is, God didn't say the only thing he cares about is how carefully we follow certain rules or or obey certain orders. He wants to see certain things happen in a real way in our lives. Do you find that preference pulling at you? That desire to deal with God in a way that is manageable and concrete that you'd rather not deal with, I don't know if I know God. How does anyone know if they know God or love God? I would rather just say, I went to church. What else do you want from me? All the rules I follow. How am I supposed to know if I'm actually changing? In the face of that tendency, the writer of Hebrews tells us in no uncertain terms, I understand the desire for that kind of life, but it's not available as an option. If you want to know God, there is no other way but the road of faith. You cannot reduce this relationship to God into something that just lives in the realm of rules and regulations and rituals. You're going to have to learn how to believe in a God who is largely invisible and whose promises have almost everything to do with the future. I want to look at Hebrews, and we're going to spend a couple months on Hebrews chapter 11, often called the Hall of Faith. Okay, it's, it's a historical review of some of the greatest heroes of the faith dating back to the second generation after Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I want to read verses 1 through 6 with you. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Listen to this last verse. And without faith, it is impossible 
to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I want to start with just defining what faith is, because have you heard words that are thrown about in church and we're never quite sure what they meant? I don't think these six verses contain a complete definition of faith, but they give us a very strong start on understanding what God means when he uses the word faith. you got to have faith, right? What does that mean? Well, one of the things he says in that first verse is it's the assurance of the things we hope for. And do you see built into that statement is the assumption that we all hope for things. To hope is to be human. Unless disappointment, pain, wickedness kill that spark in you, every child is born knowing how to hope. Sometimes that hope dies, it's quenched like a fire. But the truth is, it is human, essentially human, to hope for things. Every one of us hopes for something, don't we? We hope that things will go well for us in the end. We hope that God will actually keep his promises, that when he says, I'm there with you, you really really better be there. I've always think about a guy who's on a mission and he's got a sniper doing overwatch, and that sniper's maybe a thousand yards away, looking through a scope, and you're like, dude, please don't be scratching your butt when the moment comes you've got to be alert. Watch over me. Are you going to be there? And you can't see him. But you're really hoping he does his job, and it's just an act of faith. It's believing in things I can't see. It's it's hoping that when the moment comes that he's got to be on, he will be on. It's that kind of thing. We all know what it is to hope. But the things we hope for, by definition, cannot be seen, can they? If I had it in my hand, I wouldn't be hoping. I'd just be having. Hope has everything to do with that which is invisible and that which is future. And it has to do with things over which I actually have very little control because if I had control, I wouldn't hope. I would just do. I don't say I hope that tomorrow I will get to work. I say I will set my alarm and I will get to work. Unless an earthquake happens or my car dies, I'm going to do it. I'm not just hoping that somehow I wake up. I set an alarm and I make sure I wake up. So if I could control it, I wouldn't have to hope, but hope already tips us off that somewhere this thing I long for is out of my hands. It's out of my hands. And faith is the choice to be assured of things that I hope for. It's that even before it's ever fulfilled, this hope I have, which is anchored to God, I choose to believe. I can't give you evidentiary confirmation. I can't tell you these are the proofs. I used to love geometry proofs. How many of you guys loved, anybody loved geometry proofs? I I loved them so much, I would do all the extra ones in the book just because it's just my OCD personality. The, The fact that I can prove to you that that actually works, it just satisfied, it touched a very deep part of my soul. I love geometry proofs. I've just outed myself as a massive nerd. But the truth is, I love this idea that there it is. You don't have to wonder about it. It's irrefutable right there in black and white. This is what is true. But the truth is, our hopes cannot be proven that way. I can't tell you why I hope, but I can tell you that I'm convinced of it. I have an assurance about it. I've chosen to believe in that hope and that promise of God as though it were as good as certain. That's what faith is. It's a choice to believe without proof or fulfillment of a thing. And I think we already make lots of choices like that in everyday life. I mean, every month you work like crazy and then they pay you with electronic bits and bytes that they say is deposited into an account which you own. But there's nothing solid there. It's not like gold bricks or chickens or eggs. Do you know how many people lost everything in 9-11 when all the servers, they backed up all their proof that they own things? It blew up in the towers. And suddenly all of America realized, oh my gosh, entire lifetimes of work and investment were lost because everything that I said I owned was data. And yet every day 
we bank online. We allow Uncle Sam to take a portion of our income with the promise that he'll give it back and then some when I'm too old to work. That's not a lecture on the, the uh, forthcoming economic collapse. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you, we are banking on a lot of invisible future things all the time. We stand at altars and we agree to spend our whole future with one person, hoping like crazy they will honor that promise on their end. I can't control it. I don't see the future. I don't know for sure that's going to even happen, that we will finish our days together. But I'm banking on it without any proof that it's going to happen. And that's the nature of faith, is that I will accept as a sure thing that which I hope for. And do you see that the only way that's possible is not to bank my hope on an outcome, but on a person. I don't trust the outcome that that money's going to be there for me, that my wife's going to remain faithful to me. What I trust is her as a person. What I trust is the strength of the U.S. government. Maybe you'll, you'll say I'm foolish, but that's what I'm doing. I'm not placing my faith in a thing that might happen. I'm placing my faith in the person who underwrites that hope. I can only be as confident in my hopes as the person who secures that hope. And that's why faith is always personal for God. Whenever God writes about faith in the Bible, there's a a tinge of real personal heartfelt language there. God is never neutral about our faith because our faith is always a personal thing for him. In the same way that any man knows when his girlfriend or wife says, hey, can you find a man who could open this jar? You're like, what's that all about? I could open that jar. Can you ever take that not personally? When your lady asks you to find a man who's strong enough to open this jar, is that ever a not personal thing? God takes our faith personally because faith is always personal. It's rooted in a person, not in the hoped-for outcome. Secondly, verse 1 tells us, it is also the conviction of things not seen. So if assurance is the inward certainty that this is going to be as good as gold, it's going to happen, conviction then is the ability to act on that inner certainty. Conviction is the visible manifestation or expression of inward certainty. I don't want to put too fine a point out and parse the words that. It's not like they're saying totally different things, but it's clear from the, from the wording that both of those elements are meant to be found in what God calls faith. Is that you're deeply convinced of something being true, even if you don't have proof, and that because you're so deeply convinced, you are able and willing to act out of that conviction. J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop, the Anglican bishop of Liverpool, a very godly man, wrote some amazing books that demonstrated his deep understanding of Christ's followership. He wrote these words in a book called Holiness. In walking with God, and by the way, because of the arrow, you have to just understand a man is the same as a woman. Okay, Ladies, you don't get to fall asleep on this part. In walking with God, a man or a woman will go just as far as he believes and no further. His life will always be proportioned to his faith. His peace, his patience, his courage, his zeal, his works, all will be according to his faith. What he's saying basically is, if you want to know how big a person's faith is, look at how they live because nobody outlives their faith. We only live up to what we truly believe and we will not take one step further than that. I think we see that every week when we take our pen and put it on our checks and we say, I'm going to write an offering check. And the amount we land on is, this is the amount I can give up without wanting to just punch myself in the face. Any more than that, and I'm really starting to worry that things are going to go badly for me. And so that's what we do all the time, is we go up to a certain point where our belief hinders us from going any further. Now, I'm not saying you have to give 100%. I'm saying that's just a tangible illustration of the dynamic of living up to the limit of our faith. I I, uh, remember seeing a very, very visual expression of this dynamic when I was in the Aero Leadership Program. Back in 2004, I started something called Aero Leadership. It was based out of Canada. It's 
the most formative experience of my Christian life uh, is going through that. And on the first full day together, they had this new group of Christian leaders do this exercise while they were observing us. We didn't know until later they were observing us, videotaping us, taking careful notes about our dynamic in the group. And one of the things was rock climbing. We climbed a 60-foot rock face, and it was rainy and cold. Our fingers were numb, and they watched the group dynamic. And then they had us rappel backwards over about a 90-foot cliff. It was a sheer drop. And I remember seeing the rope that was belaying us, and it was anchored firmly to an old tree trunk. Now, I didn't do, like, wood pulp analysis of that tree trunk. I didn't check the microscopic integrity of the fibers of the rope. I didn't do all of that, but I did this much. I kicked the tree. I looked the guide up and down, the guy who tied the knots. I'm like, you look reasonably not dumb. Um, I pulled the carabiners, and I yanked on the rope, and it you know, I'm, I'm not that heavy, so I just, and like, I think that's going to hold. And that's about as much as I tested the theory. It felt strong to me. And so I placed my trust in that tree and in that rope. And once I knew that it was clipped to me, I ran backwards and I threw myself over the edge. And everyone gasped because you're supposed to actually kind of go over it's just not how I, I roll. I just I had I wanted to try it, so I just jumped off, and I was in free fall. I was like, "This is awesome!" And my last thought was, "Dang, I hope I didn't overestimate the rope or the the tree trunk." And it held, and I had an amazing experience coming down. Now I didn't have faith in my prowess. I can't fly. I certainly can't hang on to the side of a cliff. Everything that I did in that moment had to do with the faith that I placed in the rope, and my intellectual knowledge that would hope, but also my faith, my hope that everything I assessed was not wrong or insufficient. Now, there was another guy, former ball player, six foot two, big dude. But I learned that day that big doesn't mean you're not scared of anything. This guy did not like heights at all. And I'm telling you, like, he, he, was like at the edge, and he was, he was doing these <laughs> hyperventilating like crazy, tears coming down his face. And we're all rooting for him. We're like, you can do it, man. And he's like, and we, I kept showing him, look, the rope will hold you, I swear. It will hold. This is an old tree. It's fine. It's sturdy. The guy tied it. And he goes, I know all that. Do you believe the rope can hold you? Yes, I just watched five guys go over then go over. He said, I really, I know everything, but I just can't. He really couldn't. He stood right there. And I kid you not, for 30 minutes, we cheered him up. Part of the arrow leadership is teaching us that we all go down or nobody goes down. They were observing whether we just go, you know what? Forget it. Let's just go down. Don't worry about it, dude. Give up. But none of us will let this guy go. That's what happens when you hang out with all Christian leaders is you don't ever get to just go, I quit. And so he did it finally, and he did it with heaving. I mean, if you, you, if you heard him, moose in the next state over, we're like, what's that? You know, he's, oh, oh, tears coming. It was not a dignified way to go down a cliff. But you know what? He made it to the bottom. There was a football we had that was supposed to be the trophy for the person who made the greatest leap over a wall. And he got that football, and everyone signed it. It's still one of his prized possessions. We both made it down that cliff face at different paces, with different faces, but neither one of us would have made it to the bottom if we hadn't had some amount of faith in something. At some point, you've got to choose to believe in something you can't prove, something that you only know once you get going, and there it is. You do it every day without acknowledging it, but at points in your life, you're going to have to learn how to have that kind of faith on purpose. And it doesn't matter if you go the long way or the short way, the pretty way or the cool way or the ugly way and the shameful way, as long as in the end you learn that there is no other way to God than the way of faith. And at some point, something will happen to each of us that will require faith because it pleases God to see faith in us. I want to park for a second on verse 2. 
By the way, that's a good summary of, of that, that concept, is faith is belief in God so firm that we accept as certain what is invisible in future and then act upon that belief. That's what faith is. And I get annoyed when the speaker flips the slide too fast, so I'll leave that up for a couple of seconds for those who are writing it down. It'll also show up in the weekly email recap if you get those. Okay. The second thing I see, I want to park in verse 2 for a minute, where it says, faith is so important that it was by faith that the ancients were commended. See, here's, here's, I won't dwell on it, but here's what he's saying. I'm about to go through this long historical survey of everybody who ever had legendary epic faith in God. And what I want you to know is I'm going to read down this long list of amazing deeds that these people did. People you talk about in storybooks, you tell your children about them, the heroes of our faith, and yet make one thing clear. It is not what they did, which is why they're recorded in this list. It was their faith that got them the commendation of God. God was not impressed by their deeds, but he was impressed by their faith. The words by faith occur 21 times in this chapter. 22 if you're a little, if you're a little bit more generous with how you count. That's a lot of times for one phrase to occur in a chapter. It's a clear signal God wants us to understand something. That what gets his attention and his approval is rarely a massive deed of faithfulness and sacrifice. But what he really wants to know is, not only are you capable of self-denial, but do you really believe in me? Do you really see me? Or are you scrambling through your deeds to be found worthy of me? I think one of the greatest gifts in life is the commendation of a father. That's painful for some of you to hear, I know. But I think one of the greatest gifts in life is when a father looks at a son or daughter and says, well done. I am so proud of you. Of all the children I could have had, I am so thankful that you belong to me. Those words produce something real in this world. They, they have an effect you can't even imagine in the heart of a human being. I have, I have wept with people in their 60s. You never outgrow this, who are weeping openly because they still long to hear the words from their father, I'm proud of you, well done, good job. How painful when the father is no longer available. And that father went to his grave never being able to look their child in the face and say those words. And the truth of it is, sad as it is to say, that a good number of human beings will spend their earthly life unfulfilled in that regard. They won't hear those words from their dad. Even if their dad feels it, their dad is too emotionally constipated to say it or express it. And so, you just you know, right? I mean, I'm not going to say it, but you know it's my little secret. I'm proud of you. But what the writer of Hebrews says is that you also have a heavenly father. And there is a longing in us to look in, in, in the face of God and hear the words from him too. I'm really glad you're one of mine. I'm really proud of you. I saw how hard you tried. I saw how much you gave up because you were clinging to my promise. And I am so proud of you for that. It is not our deeds that get this commendation from our Father. But it is when he sees our faith in him that he looks at us and expresses that approval and that pleasure. I want to take a peek at verse number 3 as well, because I think this is important. There's this weird verse thrown into this passage that I didn't quite understand when I first read it. I, I read this passage like a gazillion times, guys. There's a point at which you lap yourself and you get almost sick of it. I have to walk away and come back because I was looking at it way too much. And I still couldn't figure out what verse 3 had to do with anything. It seemed a little out of place. But let me, let me tell you where I've landed on this. 
It's this weird thing that says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, the most fundamental level of faith is where you believe everything came from. If you don't start with that, it doesn't matter what you think about how the world works. If you can't explain in faith how everything came to be, what are you doing? You're describing things you can't even explain the existence of. Dallas Willard, Steve's hero from last week, said a phrase that I'm not smart enough to fully understand, but he said this universe is ontologically haunted. There's an echo, a demand in the universe itself that says, how did all this come to be? The idea that it all just popped into existence out of nothing, randomness, is repulsive to both the atheist and the Christian. It's not a good enough explanation for everything we see and experience. And so the first act of faith for every human being is to just say with, with clarity, this is what I believe is the origin story of our universe. This is where I believe it all came from. And, and I've shared this in the years past with you, but I'll tell you, it doesn't matter whether you're an atheist scientist or an evangelical creationist. At the end of the day, the origin of the universe cannot be empirically proven beyond shadow of doubt. In the end, it, everybody boils down to this. Even if you subscribe to the Big Bang, which to some degree I do, I'll tell you, nobody in science can explain where that first particle came from or what made it bang. Now, it flows well, it agrees well with all the empirical evidence we see, but knowing, and you know what one of my professors said to me in grad school? You got me there, man. That's where you and I are exactly the same. I just take it on faith that it always existed, and I take it on faith that one day it just went, pow, I'm going to be a universe, and there it is. I can't explain why or how. I just take, and I heard his words, and I got a chill. I'm like, Dude, that's the most honest thing a professor has ever told me. We're all religious. Some of us have pie charts and graphs, lots of numbers. But the truth is, in the end, it is an act of faith to believe that it all started from one thing or the other. And what you decide on that fundamental question leads you to all other faith. If you believe we're just a random accident, God is out of the picture. It doesn't matter what you believe anymore. But if you choose to believe that God made it, then all other faith is pinned to him and not to something else. Here's the other part of it. If the universe was created by the word of God, then God's word is truly powerful. See, we live in a culture that diminishes the importance of words. Yeah, let's talk. Talk is cheap. Words, words, words. Show me something. But God's word is different from our word. Our words are pretty cheap. Our words are worthless most of the time. You know how many times I've said to my wife, yeah, yeah, I, I will, I will. And that's my way of saying, please stop talking. Make sounds stop coming out of your mouth. And so I've learned, without even being that wicked, it just subconscious, I just go, yeah, honey, yeah, sure, I will. And at, at some recess of my brain, I'm thinking, yes, I really will, but I'm not taking it that seriously. That's just how fallen your pastor is. Our words aren't worth very much. But if the words of God which form his promises are also the same words that turned nothing into everything, then when God speaks words, those are reality-creating words. They're not just sentiments. When God says to us, I will be there at the end, you can bank on it. If you place your trust in me, you will not be embarrassed or disappointed when you've crossed the threshold of death. You live for me, And I will be there for you at the end. Those aren't just sentimental words, the way we say things like, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you is the same in today's language as I read your email. (laughs) That's too close to home? Isn't that really what we're saying? I'll pray for you means I read your email. Yeah, yep. I got your news. I know what's going on with you. That's our words. But when God speaks, There is tremendous power. That's why when we place our faith in the words of God, we're not placing our faith in some sentimental words. We're placing our faith in words that have the power to create universes. Things happen when God speaks. 
Those words can be trusted. Well, I'm going to land this plane with an observation about this, this guy, Abel. The first character in this history review of the faithful heroes of the past is a guy who was Adam and Eve's son, the second generation, but the first generation of those who had to live in a crappy world. Right? And it says, Abel somehow and his brother Cain both knew that they were supposed to make offerings to God. We don't know how they knew this, what instruction God gave, but it was clear that a standard was set and they both should have known. But for some reason, one of their offerings was accepted and the other was rejected. Scholars have guessed for centuries at what was the key difference between the two offerings. But the writer of Hebrews just tells us. You don't have to guess at him. He goes, I can't tell you exactly what made one of those offerings, but there's lots of theories. Some of them are pretty weighty. I think they're pretty close. But I can't say for sure because the Bible doesn't say for sure. Here's the one thing it does say for sure. That what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God, righteous to God, was that it was offered in faith. That what Abel did was not a response to trying to manipulate the universe or control God's response to him, but it was because he saw God in a way that was so real. This was for him the natural expression of that. The two guys lost something, but one of those guys also saw something. I think it's that way with church offering. If you don't see the God who stands behind everything we do here, then every time you write an offering check, you're losing money, but I'm not sure you're gaining the kingdom. There is something greater to be gained in everything we do in the name of faith. I believe that faithfulness flows out of faith, that there is an important order to things. That you can't struggle to be faithful unless first you truly believe in something that you have an unshakable conviction about. Here, let, let me give you an example just from something that's been a part of my life. It started out with vanity. I wanted to look sexy. So I started watching what I ate. I started exercising. And then I turned 45 and it started being about not getting diseases and not dying. I realized at 45, nobody has looked at me in 10 years, including my own wife. You know, like, she thinks I'm cute, sure, but nobody's going, check out that pastor, look at his abs. Nobody's doing that. So I just realized, stop making it about being sexy. Just try to live a little longer if you can, be a little healthier. So that's what I've been doing. And so watching what I eat has been a big part of my life lately. Anybody who's trying to lose weight or watch their weight, they go through this issue of faith all the time. Because weight loss is so gradual, it's unnervingly frustrating, isn't it? Don't you wish you could sweat it out and have a workout and look and go, look at that. I'm like skinnier. All those, those pounds melted off and they're stuck to the treadmill. Look at it. I wish it was like that because sometimes I work out so hard, I feel like I should. But I'm looking and I go, oh, pretty much the same. You know why I keep doing it? It's not because the evidence tells me it's working. It's because I believe that if I keep doing it, eventually, over the passage of time, I will see progress. So when, I'm sorry, so when I see this, at the, and I'm a, a guest at somebody's house for dinner, and that comes across the table, I got a sweet, you have no idea how hard it is for me to regulate my desire to just you know, plant my face in it. And every time we say, thanks, but I'll pass. Do you know that that's an act of faith? It's saying that sweet-looking, delicious thing is real, and it's sitting right in front of my face. I could touch it. Remember those kids with the marshmallow? Some of them pretended to chew it. Just, it was so tangible that like, if I could just connect physically, maybe its marshmallow essence will flow into my soul. They're trying whatever they can because it's so real and so immediate. But the idea of weight loss is so far future. If you're looking for evidence, you will give up right away. You will never see enough progress in real time to keep you going. But you know what you do have? You have faith. 
that if I stay at this, this result will come. And so, the immediacy of a brownie now is forsaken for the hope, the certain hope, that my goals will be achieved tomorrow. That's the way marriage is. That's the way parenting is. That's the way school is. That's the way all of life is. Every time we deny ourselves or sacrifice something, take the long way, it's an act of faith in something. To be faithful, you can't just focus on being faithful. I've tried diets and exercise regimens, and I've dropped them all. I, I read blogs on fitness every day, and I'm always like, oh, this is the new one. i got to do, like, descending sets of burpees and kettlebell raises and swings, and I, I keep coming, and I get bored of them. If, I've, if I focus only on being faithful to a thing, I, I just don't have it. But if I have faith in a truth, something that works, a law that governs the universe, I will keep going. Because I have faith, and that is why I'm faithful. Faithfulness flows out of what we really believe. In the ancient city of Smyrna, about 150 years after Jesus died, rose again, and went up to heaven, a terrible persecution broke out against the Christians there. And the crowds of the city started looking for the Christian leaders, and they found the bishop, a guy named Polycarp, And they demanded that he renounce Christ and bow to Caesar and be rid of this Christian atheism. What's interesting is in the Roman Empire, they believed Caesar was God and all other worshipers were atheists. How's that for a weird turnaround? And so they said to Polycarp, at the ripe old age of 86 years or something, renounce Christ. Nobody wants to see an old man tortured and killed publicly. So even the captain of the police squad sent to arrest Polycarp said, look, Polycarp, I don't know if they called him Polly, whatever they called him, said, look, dude, I don't want to see you die. And he said, he tried to talk him out of it. And here's what the police captain said to him. What harm is there in just saying that Caesar is Lord? Swear loyalty to Caesar and save yourself, you crazy old coot. It's just words. They're going to really kill you. It's for real. I am cleared, authorized. I have papers. I'm going to have to kill you soon. Please don't make me do it. And he could, his brain wanted to explode. He couldn't understand. It's just words. In a moment like that, everything gets real clear. <laughs> I'm sure Polycarp is sitting in a cell. Listening to the angry crowds, he feels the cold chains around his wrists. He looks out the window, sees that stake with the logs piled up around it. Everything is so real. He smells the wood. He smells, he hears, it's right there. And at some point, I've got to believe as a fellow human being, this thought crossed Polycarp's mind. Dude, what if, what if it is all just nonsense? It's just words. What if I just live to fight another day, you know? I just go, yeah, I renounce Christ, hail Caesar, and then I just go, God, I'm really sorry about what just happened. Let's fight another day. You know the story, though, because history tells us that Polycarp could not be dissuaded. And he was killed later that day. They tied him to a log, and they burned him alive. Nobody enjoys watching that. People think they're going to like to see an execution until they see an execution. And that death and the nobility with which he died shook that city and completely killed the persecution. People didn't want to see any more death. And they had real respect for somebody because at that moment, what Polycarp was saying is, I've got to check my heart and figure out what I really believe. Because this death is very real. And the kingdom of God is very invisible. Is it worth it to stake everything on a truth I cannot see? When I already smell the logs burning. What would you do? I've thought about this a lot. Maybe you have too. Every time I hear martyrdom stories, that's what obsesses me. Is I'm like, oh, 
man, I wish I wouldn't hear it. Because here's what I'm thinking all the time. I wonder if I would have made it. <laughs> I got to confess to you, there are days when I think to myself, no, nah, I would have just been like, fight another day, man. I, I would want to be that guy, but I wonder. I really wonder. How about you? It's pretty easy to say, yeah, I'd die for Jesus. I'm not so sure it's that easy, man. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be faithful, it's going to come from a deep place. Our faithfulness, that kind of faithfulness, can only be born out of real faith. It's not discipline. It's not inner strength. At that point, it's 100% what you believe and what you don't. And it's that belief in his invisible and yet future kingdom, which so pleases the heart of God, that the writer of Hebrews says, and without it, there's no way to please God. This is what he's looking for in us. So let me leave you with just a couple questions. If you truly believed that God is present with you in your situation today, truly believed it, not in theory, but he's right here with you. His power, his hope, his promises are right there with you in what you're going through right now. If you truly believe that, and if you truly believe that when God makes promises, he intends to keep them, he is the great promise keeper. If you believe those two things truly, you place your whole faith in those two things and in God himself, then let me ask you, in the things you're going through today, how would it affect the way you think and feel about your situation? That's a good test for me. Do I think and feel in a way that's consistent with believing those two things? Because the truth is, guys, when I talk to my fellow Christians, and I just simply ask the opening question, how's everything going? Can I just confess to you, I'm going to need ulcer medicine soon. <laughs> most of what I hear are words that describe a pretty hopeless situation. Nothing's changing. It's not going to get any better. I don't know. And I know that's how it feels right now. I know how, that's how it looks. That's how it smells. That's how it sounds. I know that right now you're barely hanging on. But I'm asking you because without faith, we cannot actually approach God. If you really chose to place your faith in him in these two important ways, what would it do to your attitude and to your thoughts about the situation you are enduring today? Let me ask you a second question related to that. If you truly believe these two things, how would it change the choices you're making and the things you're doing in the midst of your situation today? I, maybe I've never been pushed to the edge that you've been pushed to, but when a person's pushed to the edge, there's a temptation to just do something radical. Go to places they never imagined they would go. But let me ask you, are you contemplating something because you don't believe these things are true anymore? God invites you to remember that he is worthy of your faith. That when he says he's with you, he was not kidding. He really is with you. And when he makes a promise to you, that promise carries tremendous power. Those are not sentimental words. Those are words that create reality. And those words are for you. And I know that if you're pushed to the edge, there's this fluttering thought at the edge of your mind. Just pull the plug. Call it quits. Give up. It's not worth it. And God says, I know. I'm right there with you. Hang on, child. Faith in me is never faith wasted. He will justify the faith you place in him. No matter what it looks like right now. 
We're going to look over the course of this series at men and women who had epic, legendary faith. But it was because we have an amazing God. And when a person sees this God, faith erupts. That's my prayer for each of us. That over the course of this series, you will start to see this God show up in your own heart and in your own life. And your faith will grow. Would you bow with me? Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the band to start coming up. and Let's just pray together. I'm going to give you a minute just to respond to God in your own words. I'd like to pray for us, and then the band will close out our service. A couple songs. Just take a moment and respond to God in your own voice. Guys, at the end of the day, nobody outlives their own faith. So let's not obsess over what we will do or what we will give up. But let's obsess over what we truly believe. Because that's as far as you'll go, is what you really believe. Ask God to become greater in your eyes so that it's not so hard to believe Him. Maybe your life's a mess, but God is greater than that. Ask Him to show you that because you need to see. God, we just acknowledge in prayer this morning that some in our church family are really hurting. And what they're going through is more than they can bear. It's pushing them to the edge of what they believe they can handle. And in that place, it's so easy for you to shrink away for their pain to become more real than you. So we pray together as a church now, especially for those among us who are struggling, that you would become truly great in our eyes. That we would look to heaven and see a truly great God. And when we see you, give us a faith that can weather the storms we are going through today. There seems to be no relief in sight. It seems that nothing and no one is changing, and yet you are constant, and your promises are true. Help us to hold on until you come and deliver us. We believe together, God, that if we put our faith in you, we will not be embarrassed. We will not be disappointed. Give us that faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.